Hi, it's Sanjeev Goyal here, and uh, I have Dr. Mansoor Mohammed, who's going to be uh, talking about my uh, nutrients DNA test. Um, Mansoor, can you hear me? Yeah, absolutely. I can hear you, and it's a pleasure to be welcome to do this with you, Dr. Goyal. Okay, so how do you want to start? Maybe do you want to give a little bit of uh, what is this test about? And Absolutely, absolutely. So I'm a clinical genomicist. My background, my doctorate is in genomics, specialized in cancer genomics for several years, UCLA, Bill College of Medicine. Why do I even say that? I say that to say that understanding where I've come from to design these tests is important. I came from the world of cancer diagnostics where we were meaningfully using genetic testing and it was never meant to be single gene tests in cancer diagnostics. We want to understand the pathway that is giving that cancer the adaptive advantage. So you take five breast cancer tissues, one of them far more aggressive than the other. It wasn't just about single genes, it was about pathways that would define why one cancer behaved differently from the other. And so fast forward uh, several years, starting about nine years ago, when I started to look at the more wellness and lifestyle, i.e. functional medicine approach to things and its equivalent functional genomics, I wanted to design genetic tests, uh, Dr. Gual, that echoed that same philosophy. Because isn't it, I mean, at the end of the day, we're not just single genes beating to our own rhythm. We are organisms, individuals, that our cellular functions are playing off of pathways. It's not single genes, but pathways that define cellular processes. Cellular processes then define organal behavior, organal behavior, and then ultimately define who we are. So when we design genetic tests, which is what we're going to be delving into a little here, the goal is this. And the way that I do it, obviously, just that's what has gone into the years of doing this. I think the only thing that to go all that differentiates me is I've probably reviewed more genome profiles than most of my colleagues. At least that's, you know, and it's probably quite true. What I do when I design a test, Dr. Goal, is I do something called genomic storyboarding. And what does that mean? It means I first start with the biologic system that I want to study, whether it's neurologic function, steroidogenal function, methylation, detox, whatever it might be. I actually start with the physiologic system, cellular cascade that I want to study. Nothing genetic as yet. And we go to a whiteboard and we say, you know what, let's see if we can throw up on that whiteboard what it takes to look at steroidogenesis. How does the body move from progesterones to androgens to estrogens, met metabolize those, and so forth and so forth? We throw that up there with just good old biochemistry, good old medical biochemistry. Then what we do is we say, look, now that we've understand, understood the biologic system, the cellular process, can we overlay <coughs> the genetic underpinnings to that system? Can we say, here's the pathway, here's the cascade, are there genes that influence that pathway, gene or genes? Do we know if those genes have variations that are pertinent to the pathway? In doing that, what we're doing is we're developing a genetic test that is not a sort of stochastic one gene, one gene, one gene, but rather a genetic test that tells a story, a story that is much, much more meaningful when I look at the patient because it's actually matching or should match with what I'm seeing, what I'm expecting to see. And if it is not yet manifested, what might be some of my concerns? Does that make sense, Dr. Gold? 
No, that makes, that makes perfect sense. And so, um, can you just give a little bit about the process of, I mean, I, I, I can, I can basically talk about that. I, I spit into a tube about <laughs> a month ago and sent it off, but it's, um, Anything about the process of what makes this DNA test different and perhaps... Absolutely, absolutely. So first and foremost, it's a saliva test. You know, we, once we can get meaningful biologic sample from a person, that's where we get your DNA from, usually blood or saliva. We chose saliva for obvious reasons. Saliva, this is an FDA-approved kit. Once you actually give your sample and your views, it's just literally, as you said, it's literally spitting in a tube capping that tube, then that sample is stabilized. And the upshot here is you could forget it in your sock drawer for months and it wouldn't have mattered. So it's stabilized. So that's one of the upshots of that. It actually brings up a very, very important point, uh, Dr. Goal, particularly for some of the community members that you serve with your awesome clinic, and that is the autistic community. Because what we've started to find is a lot of autistic children, not started to find, it's just fairly par for course, that several of these children may have difficulty spitting on demand. Right. And just on that note, we're actually right now validating an equivalent kit, a saliva kit, but what it does, it allows the parent using a gentle sponge, it's a special kit that we've just, just initiated, so that just FYI, we can still get saliva, and it will be a much, much easier kit for the population of children, whether they be too young, or that's just simply difficult for them to give samples, just FYI. That's Once we get saliva sample, I think we have a patient, mutual patient who's, who needs that. So and in fact, not only, this is the thing that just has my heart with these patients, she was the one that initiated this interest because she says, you know, Dr. Mansur, even with the basic protocol that we give for autistic children, it was, it was hard for her. And she took the initiative and forced me to take extra steps. It was one of the reasons you just cannot thank these parents enough. So... That kit is going to be coming online, just FYI, and it's just going to make it so, so much easier for people in the, you know, for children in the autistic community. Now, the other thing that makes this, that, that's not really unique, fair enough, but the real unique thing about this test, uh, Sanjeev, beyond the fact, Dr. Goel, beyond the fact that it's a functional pathway, as I previously described, you know, one of the things that so many individuals, and I'm surprised even clinicians, we're lulled into thinking that these things called SNPs, these, these single nucleotide polymorphisms, or for layman, these single letter changes in the script of our operating manual, the DNA script, which is what our operating manual is made of, we're lulled into thinking that SNPs are the only variations that matter. There are many other types of variations that impact the way our operating manual behaves. And two of the most important other variations are not actually letter variations. They're variations that mean, is part of the manual missing? Is the, is the gene there or not? So now think about it. The equivalent that when I, when I teach this and when I lecture to this, to, to you know, up-and-coming students, I tell them, um, here's a sentence. The dog ran over, the dog ran to the boy. The dog ran to the boy. Okay? Meaningful sentence. This is the equivalent of a DNA sequence. It's a, it's, it's, it's a instruction. It's a story that is meaningful. The dog ran to the boy. Mm. Now, if when I was typing this, 
using this sentence as the analogy of a particular sequence in your DNA. If when I was typing this, I typed instead, the GOG ran to the boy. I made a mistake in, instead of D-O-G, I said G-O-G. The GOG ran to the boy. From a spelling error perspective, the changing of the D to the G, if I ran a spell check, which is the equivalent of what SNP testing is doing. SNP testing is checking for these variations in the spelling or the sequence of the DNA. A spell check, a SNP test, would have detected the change of dog, D-O-G, to gog, G-O-G. Good. Fair enough. Mm -hmm. What if I, when I made the mistake of the sentence, which is the sentence that I want to convey, the dog ran to the boy, what if I said, the dog to the boy, the dog to the boy. Right. It's a sentence. I've lost something of the meaning. It's not the same sentence that I was about. Well, the dog, what to the boy? Sat to the boy? Barked to the boy? I've lost something important. But here's the thing. A spell check isn't going to detect any change because the dog to the boy, everything is spelled correctly. So a snip test by analogy would not have detected anything wrong, a spell check, which is what a snip test is, would not have detected anything wrong in the sentence, even though clearly the sentence has lost, the information has lost something meaningful, which is what your genes are. Your genes are giving an instruction, and that instruction clearly in the sentence has been perturbated, it's been changed. This deletion, ran, deleted, it's a type of variation that is present in our genomes and our genetic information for which SNP testing is not informative. So when you design a proper genetic test, first and foremost, that it tells a story about actual function, something that is going to have measurable, uh, inferencible feedback to the patient, you don't just want to do SNP testing. You need to look for indels, inserts and deletions. You need to look for CNVs where the whole darn gene can be gone, believe it or not. And we're going to talk about a couple of these things for yourself. So in conclusion, to answer your question, this test is unique. Oh, it's a saliva test. That's not a big thing. It's unique in its design. How did we choose these genes? Why did we choose these genes? What is the story these genes tell and it is moreover unique in that we look at all of the, per, per, the pertinent type of variations, not just SNPs, SNPs, indels, CNVs, which really makes it robust. Make sense? Yeah, no, that's great. And just before we get into my test, yep. uh, how much, like, I know there's probably thousands of SNPs out there. Yes. Probably yes. so many genes yes. and all that. Yes. Is it that, that we don't have information on these other aspects? Yes. Is that why they're not in the test? Is that why, or, you know, or they're not so important? Good, excellent. So, you know, there are, on last count, and the number is still, so just don't be fooled, we still haven't gotten an absolute fix on every gene and every sequence in the human genome, despite it being, you know, some 17 years since the advertisement that the human genome, 18 years since the human genome had quote-unquote been sequenced. There's still work to be done. So we think, you know, there's numbers range from 20,000 to 22,000 genes, genes, unique instruction pieces. And within these genes, there are untold number of SNPs. So there are hundreds of thousands of SNPs 
in the genes. Now, what's important here is, here, let me put another sentence to you. I can have a sentence, the book is in the center of the table, the book is on the center of the table, let's just go with that one, the book is on the center of the table, mm -hmm. and I could have spelled center, C-E-N-T-E-R, Mm -hmm. Or I could have spelt it C-E-N-T-R-E. -E. Now, so long as we're Canadian or Brit, we would have known that that was a proper spelling as well. So my point here is there is a variation to the spelling of that gene, yes. that word, center, but it's not meaningful. It's a variation, but it did not, in fact, it didn't impact the meaning of the sentence, and in fact, it was perfectly okay. C-E-N-T-E-R, C-E-N-T-R-E. So one of the things that I always teach clinicians and when I teach this to other geneticists, I, I, I make sure to point out that not just because there is a SNP, not just because there's a variation, does it mean that it has a meaningful clinical impact? Center, center, T-R-E, T-E-R as the example. So this is the first thing. A lot of folks come to me and they bring, you know, other tests, which are perfectly fine. Mind you, our tests are not, we're not talking with 23andMe here, people. We're talking about really functional medical stories that we're telling. So a lot of folks will bring to me a lot of different snips that they've gotten from a different test. Oh, Dr. Bensur, what does this mean? And I'm like, well, your guess is as good as mine. It's, it's, we don't know if that variation actually has a meaningful, impactful change to the sentence, to the gene that it is encoding. So what we're interested in, you know, and maybe that information is cool, but ultimately what we're interested in is designing tests that look for variations that are measurably impactful. It has some, it, it does something, it, it impacts something. It, it's a gene that is encoding an enzyme. That enzyme has a job to do. That gene has variations that will make the encoded enzyme either more optimal or less optimal, depending on the... That's something I want to know, because if that enzyme is responsible for converting an inactive form of a nutrient into its active form, and that enzyme, because of its gene, is going to be either more efficient or less efficient at activating that nutrient, that's something I want to know about. But if that gene that made that enzyme has a variation in it that does not impact the enzymatic kinetic efficiency, it does not impact the binding efficiency, it doesn't do anything, then that variation, that SNP, is frankly meaningless from a clinical perspective. Okay, so this is one. The other is clearly, in the test that we've designed, we're looking at a subset of a subset of a subset of genes. We're definitely not looking at 22,000 odd genes, 20,000 odd genes. And so absolutely, we must always start with the humility of saying we clearly are not looking at everything, not even by a margin. But this is where the design comes in. You see, because I also give the analogy, you know, when, when, I, when I got this thing that I hate, that is ruined lives, but anyways, smartphones, we all have them. When I got it, and let's say it came with an operating manual, I don't actually have to read that operating manual cover to cover, page to page, paragraph to paragraph, in order to make a meaningful association and get what I want to get from it. 
Yeah. An intelligent reading of the manual means, well, the first thing I wanted to do was, what the hell is this Siri everybody's been talking about? So I flip over to page 15 and I read about how to use Siri. I read about whatever that I'm interested in. So intelligent genetic testing design means we can go from 22,000 odd genes to the pathways that we're interested in, that are meaningful, that are impactful. And here's another thing not just meaningful and impactful, but information that when we had it, we can do something with it. Yeah. See, because that's another, that's another filter. It's one thing to get genetic information that, is, that it's impactful, it's gonna tell you something, but that you can't do anything about it. Now, that information is still important, it's important because it might help us understand why something is happening in the body, why is something not getting done efficiently, but in a clinical context, the things that we want to know about the most are the things that if we know it, it will, it will explain something and we will be able to better treat that patient and we'll be able to better personalize and zone in as to what we want to do. Those are the type of gene assays that I'm interested in and that's what we've designed and that we'll be hearing about today. Okay, awesome. So how do you want to Get started on this. Do you want so to? we're going to have some fun. That's what we're going to do. And for the, and for the audience, you know, Sanjeev obviously is well. You all know him and, and amazing, amazing work that he does. And and he's in that world of what we call the biohackers. You know, guys and gals and clinicians and labor people. We want to learn about this operating manual for one reason. And I think that the goal, you'll agree with me. We want to improve human health and well-being. You know, and either yeah. from the clinician to the patient or just as individuals, we want to know how to use this operating manual so we can get out of this amazing machinery, which is not to de decrease the human being to a machine, but how to get the most out of ourselves, our loved ones, our patients. Okay, so what we've done here is we can separate this report that we've done for you. There are multiple pathways. There is the pathway of... Uh, mood and behavior, because believe it or not, an intelligent review of genes that impact axes, the dopaminergic axis, serotonergic axis, noradrenergic axis. We can start understanding how, what are the proclivities of behavior in this person. That's one section. We've looked at amazing storytelling about the cardiovascular system. Again, storyboarding this cardiovascular system and then asking what are the players in it and then asking what are we doing? Is there, are there any things that are starting to show up? Should we be having better surveillance on that system in the person? Because we now know that there are some concerns, for example, all the way up to and including your system of steroidogenal your sex hormones, how is the person making their progesterones and their androgens, testosterone, and, and their estrogens. So we've looked at all of these pathways. Let's, let's put some good ones, but put it to bed because they are either not as clinically relevant for you or you won the lottery in those genes. So, and Dr. Goel, handsome, fine specimen of a man. So he has won the lottery in a few regards. Oh, good. But he's also not, he's got a few things that we're going to have to watch out for. Okay. okay? Now, I want to start with something, Dr. Goel, ultra, ultra simple. Just take one little sliver 
and what is the story behind it and show what intelligent genetics mean. So Dr. Goel, what's your ethnicity? I, I take it East Asian of some type? Yeah, South Asian. South Asian? Mm -hmm. Like my forefathers, I'm an island boy, so I'm a few generations out of South Asia to the Caribbean islands and then to this beautiful country, Canada. But generally speaking, you know, Asians, South Asians. Okay, so you and I and our noble ancestors and people of our ilk of the geographic region, whether it's the equatorial geographic region or other regions of the world where we were exposed to a lot of sun, one of the things our forefathers did not have to worry too much about was vitamin D. Because when we are out and about in the sun, I think it's one of the first textbook things you learn, sunlight induces the production of vitamin D, D as in David, as in sunlight, in the body. And I always tell Dr. Gual, I tell my patients, I tell my fellow clinicians, if you ever want to let your patients know how important vitamin D is, tell them, think about it. All of your other micronutrients and nutrients, you got to go pick something, cook something, kill something, cook something to get it. Vitamin D, the good old Lord just made it such that you walk out into the sun and that your body makes it. I mean, it's a profound thing that we're making this amazing micronutrient. It's actually more of a hormone, as you know, mm -hmm. just by going into the sun. Now, clearly in northern climates like we live in, the going theme is we typically talk about too little vitamin D because, of course, we're entering into months, shorter days, we're cold, we're bundled up, we're not getting much sun exposure. Good. And too little vitamin D is clearly a concern. But one of the things we don't talk about and we don't have to talk about, particularly in Canada, is there's such a thing as too much vitamin D as well. As well. Now, why am I putting this as a foundation? Think about it. If our forefathers lived in a time and a place where they got tons and tons of sunlight, and if sunlight induces the production of vitamin D, and if there is such a thing as too much vitamin D, it can actually be, you can have vitamin D toxicity. Right. How did our forefathers survive? Because we would have all, our forefathers, making gobs and gobs of vitamin D going to the sun, we should have all had the risk of too much vitamin D. And this is way more than just our skin complexion. This has to do with the fact, and here comes the beautiful story. So this is functional medicine and genetics, genomics. What you make when you go into the sun is a precursor to the active vitamin D, to the 25 and 125 dihydroxycalciferol. That's the active thing. But the thing that was induced with those sun rays to your dermal layer is a precursor to that. And there is one gene, the CYP2R1 gene, CYP2R1, that activates that precursor into its active version. And unsurprisingly, Sanjeev, Dr. Goel, you and I will have necessarily, or almost necessarily, the slow version of that gene. You see, the slow, one might say suboptimal version of that gene was actually optimal for us in our ancestral lands, for our ancestors, which brings up a hugely important point that 
even for genes that you might deem there's an optimal and a suboptimal version, there's often a story as to why does that suboptimal version even exist in the first place? Exactly. Okay. So let's, I just want to ask, so how many South Asians do you see with the very optimal gene very few and when you do you can almost always point them to for example the nordic indians the more caucasian line of the caucasus indians they will tend to have the optimal version of the cyp2r1 but your more coastal southern asian truly southern asian it's exceedingly rare and it would make sense unless there's an unknown grandpa or grandmother <laughs> in, the, in the mix or known one for that matter Okay, so you and I, classically, we've got, we are the GGs, we're homozygous Gs, that's the version of the gene, the SNP, the allele, the G allele is the suboptimal, so that our CYP2R1 enzyme, which is a hydroxylizing enzyme, is not converting or activating the precursor into its active form as efficiently, and good riddance, if we were living in the sun, eight hours a day, 365 days a year. But now we take that sub-optimability, which, which was an adaptive advantage for our forefathers, and yeah. here we come to this beautiful country, and of course, you know, we're covered up. It's wintertime, and heck, you know better than me, Dr. Gore. Winter or summer, we're here in our offices from sunrise to sunset. We're not getting much sun exposure. We could not hope to have optimal levels of vitamin D from basic food groups. I mean, we've, you know, we're just not adapted to this environment. Yeah, yeah, Step yeah. number one. Okay. Step number two, when you activate your vitamin D, vitamin D is not stable on its own. It's the 125-dihydroxycalciferol to be transported in the bloodstream to take it to all of the tissues and the cells of the body that vitamin D needs to be bound to a carrier taxicab, a carrier protein, unsurprisingly known as the vitamin D binding protein, VDBP, which is also known as the group complement protein. So this, what is, what is this protein? It's a taxicab. It picks up the activated vitamin D and it transports it to the body. We cannot transport vitamin D efficiently without that taxicab. And so we look at the GC gene for Dr. Goal and myself. What's it called, the GC? The GC, G as in group, C yeah. as in complement. It is simply another name for the VDBP. VDBP, vitamin D binding protein, is one and the same as the GC group complement. One and the same. So you'll see it in the literature as the same. Okay. So this gene makes the taxicab that picks up the vitamin D that has now been activated and transports it to the body. Well, Dr. Gual, you've got a two-seater tuk-tuk. Your taxi cab <laughs> is not the eight-seater limousine. It's designed to pick up small amounts of the activated vitamin D at a time, at a time, and deliver it because, again, you were designed to be in the sun fairly consistently. You weren't designed to activate lots and lots of the precursor, and you weren't designed to transport lots and lots of vitamin D as though we can't get a little, you know, the moment we get a little, like the Northern Europeans, my, my goodness, their two hours of sun 
for three days of the year, they want to activate as much as they can get, I'm obviously exaggerating, and transport as much as they get. They will invariably, more often than not, have the optimal CYP2R1 and the optimal GC gene. You and I do not. Okay. Now, this is important because, number one, we've just told this is the sliver of a sliver of functional genetics. It's no longer about just independent genes. It's about understanding what is the story? Why are these genes doing what they're doing? And how can we interpret them? That's number one. So Dr. Gall, if he does not monitor his serum vitamin D levels, which I'm sure he does because he's Dr. Gall, but more than that, he already knows that he probably, despite diet, and, the, and again, we have to get into diet, and what are some of the sources of things that you might eat that might otherwise have some vitamin D in it, you will say, okay, you know what? Healthily for me, I need to take about 1,000, 2,000 IUs a day. Okay, fair enough. But what does this information tell us? It tells us that for the Dr. Goals and the Mansours of the world, it's not, it is by no means appropriate and adequate for us to say, you know what, I'm going to take one of these mega vitamin D doses once for the month. Why? Because if I took a mega vitamin D dose with a taxi cab that is a two-seater tuk-tuk, much of the vitamin D that has now been absorbed into my bloodstream isn't going anywhere anytime soon, and it's not stable in the blood. Right. Okay. So what you and I need to do, we cannot afford to do one of those ultra-high dose levels. I'm not saying that it can't be beneficial in an acute case of some circumstance, but more better or better for us would be we would take a 1,000 IUs at breakfast. We take another 1,000 IUs at lunch if need be. We could hack. We could take another 1,000 IUs 4 o'clock in the afternoon, probably not much later than that. In other words, we would mimic taking our vitamin D in a circadian rhythm, two things. One, at the level that the body can actually use and transport, and two, mirroring the circadian rhythm of the day, for example. And this is, sorry, I know we're just digressing a bit, but it's very interesting. The circa, so are you saying there's circadian rhythm involved in vitamin D? So one of the things that I always tell individuals is when you see how a body is designed to do something, and there's a little intuitiveness to this, the production of that vitamin D during sunlight hours, you know, I just had someone tell me they were taking a lot of their vitamin D just before they go to bed at night. Yeah. You know, and I'm not, I'm not trying to say that there's a clinical uh, consequence of that or that it may not be relevant, or, but think of it. I can't think of an innate normative biologic occurrence where the body was going to make a guac load of vitamin D at 10 o'clock at night before you go to bed. So when we try to deploy an intelligent, you know, we've, we've unfortunately, we've broken the human body down to these first principles and we say, okay, here's a vitamin, the body needs it. Okay, I can take it whenever I want. Here are 10 nutrients that the body needs and I can take all 10 of them at the same time necessarily. We're running into a little error here because the human body in its innate natural state, when, when does the human body, when does the liver that still has to process a lot of these things see a milligram of this, five milligrams of that, 10 micrograms? We've got to start understanding that yes, the intelligent supplementation, if and when, if and when needed, because we, we advocate whole foods, healthy living, 
clean environment. And we only advocate if we see someone needs a little boost, whether it be genetically, circumstantially, we give them minimally what is needed for maximum uh, results. Because here comes another point that may be less genetic. People and so many of the patients that I speak to, they're lulled into believing just because something is natural, it doesn't have it, you know, you can take it, it will only be good. Well, we still have this poor little thing called the liver that has to process most of the things we put into the body. We still have those poor two little things called the kidneys that has to process the blood, send things to the bladder. We've really got to start thinking what does the human body, what was it designed for? How was it designed? What are its thresholds? And try to practice an intelligent view of biohacking that reflects the reality of the human body and hence the note about the vitamin D. What I was more getting at is let's just assume that three to 5,000 IUs was a dose that we would have recommended to someone for whatever reason because we're noticing their serum levels aren't coming up unless we give them that dose. What I'm saying here, Dr. Goyal, is what you will find, and we see this in hundreds. I mean, we've done thousands of patients. Yes, that many. If and when you see someone with a suboptimal vitamin D binding protein, and let's just assume you wanted to have them on 5,000 IUs for the day, for whatever reason, just hypothetically, that patient who could have taken the 5,000 IUs in the morning all at once, would better stabilize and you will actually measurably see their serum levels get to where you want it better, faster, easier. Of, instead of giving them 5,000 IUs all at once in the morning, you give them 221 or 211, you know, whatever. You give it to them in a dose that their body can actually process it and maintain it better and accordingly. Make sense? Okay, so that's just a sliver. That, that was just to get the, the juices flowing here. Now, in a really quick, everyone that knows Dr. Gall, yeah, well, you all know him, good-looking young man, fit young man, his steroidogenal pathway, his how does his body convert and make progesterones and converts those progesterones into androgens, testosterone, and then we take some of that testosterone and we make it into DHT, dihydrotestosterone, which I call testosterone on testosterone. I call DHT my Jason Statham testosterone. Oh, there's the, the buff cut guy, he's going to go bald at some point. And then take some of that testosterone and make estrogens. This is one of the most beautiful biologic cascades in the human body. So step number one, men and women out there, we both sexes and everything in between. Right. We all have the three families of hormones, progesterones, androgens, and estrogens. Men, we don't have a, you know, a, a lottery cold over testosterone. Women, you don't over estrogens. This is the first. We all have all three. Probably more surprising than that to many of the listeners, including even clinicians have been surprised, right. is the three hormones are related. Your menstruating years, estrogen, Every molecule of estrogen, if you're a menstruating woman, every molecule of your estrogen was previously a molecule of testosterone. Estrogen is nothing other than something called an aromatized testosterone. So in other words, your body will make testosterone and it will, it will uh, 
evolve, it, 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 it will change, it will metamorphosize that testosterone into estrogens by the job of one gene, one gene. And where did the testosterone come from? Your testosterone was nothing other than progesterone, which is why it's called progesterone. It is the progenitor. So let's, let's put that together. What is happening in the circadian rhythm in women, the circadian rhythm happens every 28 days. The body is making progesterone. It is converting the progesterone into androgens, and there are a number of them, DHEA, androstene diol, androstene dion, and testosterone, which is the one we tend to think of most. Then we will convert that testosterone into estrogens, 28-day cycle. Men, we actually have a cycle. We just don't have some of the consequences of the cycle. Our cycle is 24 hours, roughly. Okay. And in women, they're converting their progesterone to testosterone usually around two days prior to ovulation, which is when you tend to find a little libido jump in ladies that are menstruating. About then, we men, we will convert our progesterone to testosterone about two hours before we get up in the morning, roughly, which is why when we were younger and we got up in the morning, well, we got up in the morning. It's because our testosterone levels were much higher right at that point in time. For Dr. Goel, your balance of how you move progesterone to testosterone to estrogens to secreting it, i.e. metabolizing and flushing it up, it's almost ideal. I've looked at my, I have my little chart open here. Yep. Um, and, I don't know if uh, you have it open or you can see it. I do. I, 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 I'm, I'm watching it. I, I actually just look at the raw results, so I don't even look at the chart. Now, the only thing with Dr. Goel is, sorry, uh, Sanjeev, yeah. as you get a little older, those hair follicles are going to start saying goodbye on you. That's what's happening. Yeah. <laughs> and it's happening because you're making, you're converting progesterone to testosterone faster than you can shake a stick at. You are a fast CYP17A1. So when your body makes progesterone. It's yellow. So even though it's yellow, it's not green. Right. So yeah, the, the yellow means that you're heterozygote, right? So the CYP17A1. Yes. Let's, let's get a little genetics here now. CYP17A1 is the the gene that makes the CYP17A1 enzyme. The CYP17A1 enzyme is what is converting your progesterone pregnenolones into your androgens, DHEA, and others. Voila, there we go. Okay? Now, now, Dr. Goal is a he is a heterozygote for the CYP17A1, the CYP17A1 gene. There is a variation, a meaningful variation there that has a G version and an A version. The G version of the gene, the G version, is the fast version. It makes an enzyme that is fast, fast at converting progesterones into androgens. The a version of the CYP17A1 is slow at doing that. Dr. Goel is a GA. So he is, by chart, he is a heterozygote amber. However, the G version, which is fast, also happens to be dominant. So even though you're heterozygote and technically amber, your P to T, i.e. P to androgens, is happening faster than we can shake a stick at. Okay. Now, once you make your testosterone, you're also, 
And the heterozygote of the SRD5A2 steroid 5 alpha reductase, which converts testosterone into DHT, is a true heterozygote, meaning for this gene, we don't have, it's a co-dominance. So we're going to have the slow version, right. we're going to have the fast version, and we're going to have a heterozygote like you. Yeah. But because you are a P to T fast, which is the beginning of the cascade, yeah. and then you're heterozygote for T to DHT, you're going to be showing that dominance in your body type. You are going to be the male, all things equal, that will tend to have that leaner striation, Adam's apple formation, thinning here. Mm. And the only reason, the only reason you've not gone, how old are you, Dr. Go? I'm 48. So the only reason that you've not gone, forgive me for saying so, bald or thinner, the yeah. only reason you've not gone bolder sooner is wow. look at the UGT genes. You see those UGT genes top right-hand corner. You're peeing it out quickly. You're peeing it out quickly. There you go. Mm -hmm. So you're making that testosterone, that DHT. Yeah. Had you been, Dr. Goal and I, you could take this to the bank. Mm -hmm. Had you been a slow UGT glucuronosyl transferase, which is the enzyme pathway that is responsible for 80-plus percent of the metabolism of testosterone and DHT, you would have been bolder far sooner. And here's the other point. Mm -hmm. If you were slow for that UGT pathway, you would have also had a greater risk of onset of hyper, benign prostate hyperplasia into the years that you're entering just about now, by the way. So let's now, say if, uh, you know, if I want to, let's say if I want to put on some muscle or whatever, if, mm -hmm. if I was supplement with testosterone, is this mm -hmm. going to push more to DHT and I'll get bald? <laughs> that's, well, two things. You would be the gent that if you did supplement with a testosterone or an analog, you right. would, I mean, hold on one second. No worries. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. You would not have near the impact of that supplementation for two reasons. Right. Because A, you're not holding on to testosterone for very long. You're flushing it out of the body quite quickly. Right. And to agree that you push a little bit more DHT, if you didn't do something to block the SRD5A2, then yes, you could accelerate a bit more of that hair loss. Okay? Mm -hmm. So here are a few permutations and combinations. Let's use this very, very quickly as a teaching tool. Got it. If you had a male, so everyone that's looking on, the exact profile that you're seeing on the screen, except male, he or she had the fast version of sub-17A1 over on the left-hand side. So it's con he's converting that progesterone to testosterone faster than you can shake a stick at. Right. He also had a fast SRD5A2, woohoo, green light, testosterone to DHT. Right. Had a red light for UGT2, the UGT2Bs. It, you make testosterone DHT and it ain't going anywhere anytime soon. Right. And the red light for aromatase. Mm -hmm. What is this male? Boy, he is that prototypical androgenized male. He's going to be that young man that, you know, all young women for that matter, all young women that especially in their youth just striated. And we know these guys, you know, they just, you can count the muscle groups on them. They don't have to do very much. But those men from the, from the male side of the equation, they are invariably at risk for later onset benign prostate hyperplasia, late 40s, early 50s, 
especially if they had some other dietary lifestyle things that were further co-founding factors, smoking, drinking, as the case might be. You right. can take it to the bank with these men. These young women, Dr. Gual, that I just described, the, the female counterpart, a female that had fast of 17A1, fast SRD5A2, slow aromatase, and slow excretion, will also be, these will be the young women, smaller breasted, smaller hip flare, lean, striated body type, don't have to try very much. But as they get a bit older, they're at a significantly increased risk of polycystic ovarian syndrome because DHT dominance in females is one of the biggest risk factors for PCOS. Acting in these young women, too much DHT, out of balance with the other hormones, major risk factor for acne, well established, mind you. Thinning of the hair, both in the men and the women, big time, if you had that profile, okay? Mm -hmm. Let's quickly take, quickly, quickly take the, the exact opposite. So now let's look at a male who is fast or slow, for that matter, CYP17A1, mm. slow SRD5A2, so very little DHT production, mm -hmm. slow or medium or fast UGT2B15, mm -hmm. but fast CYP19A1. Meaning, as this person, this, in this case this male, as he makes testosterone, his body is not holding on to testosterone as testosterone for any length of time for that testosterone to exert its effect on the body of all of the things testosterone will do to the body because he's either peeing it out or it's going down into the estrogen pathway. So here's going to be a male that come what may, he could be you know, fit, meaning healthy weight for healthy height and, and otherwise strong, but come what may, that male is not going to have that striated count the muscle. And we know these men as well. And they go to the gym and they're lifting their weights like their compatriots. And they just don't get that muscle build because they're not holding on to that testosterone near as long as we would otherwise like. Now, the point that I'm raising here, which is what you just raised, Dr. Gual, if we took that same male who has the fast CYP19A1, when his body sees testosterone, he makes estrogen from it, and he shows up in his early 40s to his doctor, and he says, you know, doc, I don't know, you know, I mean, it's like pushing water up a hill. I'm doing everything I can performance-wise in the sack, outside of the sack. It's not just where I want it to be. And the doctor goes, you know what? Your testosterone is probably low. Let me give you some androgel. Let me give you some testosterone. We can make matters worse for these men. And I kid you not, Dr. Gual, just yesterday, just yesterday, I had a client that came to see me, didn't tell me anything about himself. He was the male that had the fast CYP19A1 aromatase. When he makes testosterone, much of his testosterone is quickly going down into estrogens. Now, he was in his 40s, so of course, his initial production of testosterone in the first place had started to go down. So he was experiencing a few things. He went to his doctor. His doctor put him on DHEA, one of the four major androgens with the androstene diol and testosterone. Within two weeks of going on DHEA, he started experiencing nipple tenderness and gynomastia. He was literally going, what the hell is going on? 
Well, what we did with this poor male is we put him on an androgen without any knowledge or, or understanding that when we replenish that androgen pre-made, much of that androgen is just making estrogens in his body. Which is not to say that we can't correct his pathway, but it is to say that if we are going to give these males some androgens, whether it's DHE, whether it's a testosterone analog, we've got to do two things. We've got to make sure and check their SRD5A2 because, the, God forbid, could you imagine putting testosterone into a male without knowing otherwise? He had a slow CYP19A1 aromatase, but a fast SRD5A2. And what have we done there? The guy's in his late 40s, early 50s. We're giving him a testosterone and we're just pushing him to make more DHT. We're sending him down a pathway for BPH is what we're sending him down. Conversely, if they had the FASCIP19A1, what we need to do here is we need to understand, if we're gonna give the androgen in this case, do we need to block anything? Do we need to block or slow down the 5-alpha the reductase pathway, the SRD, so as to protect him from DHT? Do we need to slow down the aromatase pathway so as to protect him from actually doing something that we were trying to solve in the first place? And yet we made a more estrogenized male. So this is a lot to digest, but the point of this beautiful, this is pathway genetics. It's functional genetics. We get to look at it. We get to say, I get what's going on. So in Sanjeev's case, let's come back to Dr. Goal's case. You know, Dr. Goal would have been that young man, especially when he was making a lot of the progesterone and therefore testosterone at higher levels in his late teens and 20s, who couldn't keep up with him. He, he, was, he was that young man. But as his testosterone production goes down... That's right. Then I'm feeling it more now in my 40s. You're feeling it much more than the average male because remember, your UGT genes didn't slow down. You're still peeing it out at the same rate as you were when you were 17, 18, 22, 25-year-old. The difference now is you're just not making enough or you're so not I, making enough. I could be a candidate. Like if I was looking at this profile, I could be a candidate for testosterone supplementation or no? You, 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 you could and would, but we would want to do our best to two things. Mm. To be safe because you're in your late 40s, we would want to make sure and slow down the SRD5A2. You see, because we benefit from the testosterone, we just don't want too much of that DHT. Okay, so Will we can people not gain muscle if that happens. Like, I'm just worried. Like, no, 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 no. I mean, it's not as though that you're you're not negating DHT unless you use something like a finisteride, right. you know, you're not putting, you know, things like sorpometto, uh, fenugreek. These are what we'd call soft blockers. You can, you can dose, you can dose it to they get. make a difference. Like these types of, so I know that you, you have nutrients has, a, I guess, a bunch of has supplements that you customize based on people's absolutely uh, genetic profile yes so, um you find that these types of supplements which are not medications but i guess um vitamins or minerals or herbs mm -hmm. uh, make an impact enough of an impact on they, they can depression. when intelligently used right. so for example sorbometo there are numerous clinical studies advancing the use of sorbometo as a fairly potent mm -hmm. and safe inhibitor of SRD5A2, it inhibits SRD5A2. 
Right? It does not stick. It does not have the same epigenetic phenomena that we're now concerned about with finasteride. I'm sure that you know that one of the reasons you've got to be so careful for women, particularly pregnant women, to be anywhere close to a man that is even taking finasteride mm-hmm. is that at minute levels, finasteride can so potently block the SRD5A2 pathway so as to cause developmental considerations and concerns in a developing fetus. So palmetto does not seem to have those deleterious effects. So keep in mind here that what we're doing is we're only saying if there is scientific data for a substance, a nutrient, a derivative that has been shown to exert some effect on a particular pathway. And only if we've determined that that pathway seems to need addressing, that's what we're bringing the two things together, the knowledge of the pathway and the knowledge of an ingredient that can be beneficial to that pathway. And of course, Dr. Goal, we're only doing this under the guidance of a clinician or clinicians, particularly clinicians of your ilk, clinicians who understand functional medicine and understand that we don't just look at symptoms, we look at what's going on behind the scenes. So coming back to answer your question, Dr. Goal, ideally, and now let's just be clear, not every profile, not every profile, have we seen that we can come in and correct that pathway. You see that UGT 2B17, 2B15 pathway? There are a few things that can slow it down. So ideally, if your testosterone, you know, you're about now getting down there, if we were to put some testosterone into you, we would want to do so safely and probably simultaneously make sure you're not making much DH, as much DHT as you might otherwise make because you're a heterozygote for SRD5A2. You see, if you had the slow version of SRD5A2, I would have given you that testosterone with a little bit more ease. I would have said, you know what? I'm not overly concerned as to making too much DHT at this critical point in your, you know, later 40s, getting into that age, into that period. But importantly here, the UGT2B15, 2B17 that is playing a role in glucuronidizing and flushing out both testosterone and DHT, Mm -hmm. that's not their only job in the body. They are potent phase two detox enzymes. They are potently involved in detox reactions, by the way, (laughs) you don't want to go and block willy-nilly. Right, right. Okay, so when people talk about trying to slow down their UGT pathway, I always have to tell them, hey, listen, the, the glucuronosyl transferase enzymes and their genes are probably only second to glu- the glutathione genes, your, your two top phase two enzyme pathways. So don't go block that because certain toxins, certain medications that you might be taking, you could skew the toxicity profile. Do you understand? Now, you know, so, so really, Dr. Goal, the real message here to the community that's been listening is it's about intelligent steps. It's, it's not plug and play willy-nilly. It's about taking a look at the person, understanding what is their context, what is their age, are there medications, what are they doing, and making sure we do the right thing at the right time. Make sense? Yeah, that sounds good. Do uh, you think we should pick one more? and? Uh... Yep. Like so, so much to go through on my report, but uh, it, 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 so so we can pick one more here. 
if someone were to ask me, put, well, if you were to say, all right, Mansur, you only get to tell me one thing that I got to be worried about, if there's anything to be worried about. If I had to choose one word, one word yes. to describe my concern about Dr. Goal, and I know this is going to seem so diluted, so, but for you specifically, it would be inflammation. Inflammation. Sorry, just one second. Yeah, go ahead. It would be inflammation, Dr. Goal, yeah. in all of its forms and manifestations. Why? And by the way, I would be particularly concerned about this as it relates to your vascular inflammation. So one of the things that I, if, if you'd come to me, I don't know anything else about you. You're sitting on the mid to top end of the 40s. We're not making cholesterol the big bad monster here. But I would be very suspicious that your cholesterol profile is a little bit north or a little bit on the higher side of the scale. Well, I'm, I am a vegan and my cholesterol is like super low, but I mean, it could be. Uh, so, 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 of course, here you've taken a dietary path that is radically altering or could have a radical impact, which is so important. And by the way, affirming to your dietary choice. So let's quickly cover this. Yeah, let's maybe go over that piece. Right? So number one, number one, Dr. Goal, is your methylation profile. Now, of course, there's a little bit of a double-edged sword here because as a vegan, now, are you vegan or vegetarian? I'm pretty much vegan. Yeah, I do have okay. whites and stuff like that. So, so one of the things that you know you're going to have to pay attention to is your B12, obviously. Yeah, I am taking, I am taking that because I think I'm a low absorber, I believe. Exa not only are you a low absorber, you're also a low activator of cyanocobalamin into its methyl form. But I will go one step beyond that, Dr. Goal. You are a good candidate for a slightly different form of cobalamin. You're a better candidate for adenosyl cobalamin. Now, we adenosyl cobalamin. What's the difference between that and methyl? So it's the way in which the body will use that, whether it be methyl. So as we know, cobalamin, the derivative molecule, hydroxycobalamin is the precursor, which then gets converted into either and or hydroxy into methylcobalamin, hydroxy into adenosylcobalamin. Now, we've entered both feet into the realm and the world of methylation. Methylation being another one of the most awesome examples of cellular cascades and it's all about how the body is using these methylated carriers and they're going to be two goober important methylated carriers your methylated folate folate of course think everything green leafy folate b9 and your methylated cobalamin and so your methylation reaction is the reaction in the cell that is passing the baton it's a relay race between five primary genes that will pass the methyl group one carrier to the next starting with folate folate becomes methylated mm -hmm. then there is under two genes that will do that job to create five methyl tetrahydrofolate and then to the degree of the efficiency and optimability with which we're creating 5-methyl tetrahydrofolate, 
one gene called the methionine synthase reductase, the MTRR gene, grabs the methyl group from the methylfolate, gives it to cobalamin to create methylcobalamin, and then here it comes. One other gene, the MTR methionine synthase, grabs the methyl from the methylcobalamin, see we're passing it along, and takes that methyl group and contributes it to several cellular reactions involved in methylating things, such as methylating homocysteine to create the less inflammatory methionine. Now your MTR, methionine synthase, which is the gene and its enzyme, grabbing the methyl group from the methylcobalamin, giving it to whatever it needs to be given to, is a homozygote suboptimal. Your MTR, you're a GG for that step, which is the homozygote suboptimal, which as far as we can tell, you see most people when they think of taking a vitamin B supplement, especially if they're going to take the sublingual version already, they take a sublingual methylcobalamin. But if you're taking methylcobalamin, and depending on the levels at which you're taking methylcobalamin, and you are not getting that methyl group and giving it to where it needs to go to efficiently, we can actually, other methylation reactions that are not the ones we want to have happen, there is such a thing as over-methylation or methyl toxicity reactions, we're going to have to be a bit more careful with you. So with people like yourself, what we generally recommend is Either we give you the hydroxycobalamin, which you can also get as a sublingual, okay. allowing the body to use it and convert it as needed, keeping in mind that you're not very good at grabbing the methyl group from the methylcobalamin, or we give you adenosyl cobalamin, which is the very reason that adenosyl cobalamin was formulated as opposed to uh, methylcobalamin. So this is just uh, an insight there. And where do you get it? Denisil comes as, as a sublingual or does it? You can get it. The only problem is, and we've been trying really hard, it's very difficult to get in Canada. We, we, we think we're close to getting approval for it yeah. for reasons that I don't know why it's hard. Um, but you certainly can get it in Europe. You can get it in America a bit easier. Uh, you can get hydroxy here in Canada. So whenever, and by the way, I'm in the same boat as you. When it comes to my B12 pathway, you and I are identical. Mm -hmm. So I prefer to take hydroxy B12. You know, when I take too much methylcobalamin, you know how you experience methyl toxicity or overmethylation? Many people will, re will relate feeling almost a, a sense of vascular migraine, like a sense of vascular pressure if they're getting too much. If you give a non-vegan, so they're getting other sources, with you and I, our genetic pathway, you give them a IM methylcobalamin, many of these people right then and there, they start to experience a headache. They start to feel like it's just too much blood flow. And it's, I don't quite know all of the processes that are happening there, but it's an off-repeated, and it's one of the signs of hypermethylation. Um, but you take an adenosyl or hydroxy, and those symptoms just, you know, you get all the benefits without the symptoms. So basically, I'm giving the precursor that allow to still create methionine still. Correct. Correct. Now, the problem here, I say problem because really it's the one core area, mm -hmm. is your folate pathway is also quite suboptimal, as you can tell, Dr. Goel.
You okay. see the one-two conversion of the folate into the dihydrofolate, tetrahydrofolate, and then the one twenty, the the, the one five ten methyl tetrahydrofolate into the five methyl tetrahydrofolate is from SHMT1 into MTHFR, and both your SHMT1, your heterozygote for it, and your primary SNP, here comes another point, the MTHFR gene has multiple SNPs in it, affecting enzymatic activity in different ways, with the MTHFR enzyme being the enzyme that completes the methylation of the folate into the 5-methyl-tetrahydrofolate, your SHMT1 and MTHFR are both suboptimal. Critically, critically here, Dr. Goel, and we've seen this, and I hope to actually publish this, because we've done several hundred patients with this. Okay. We find that these patients, one of two things, definitely just good old-fashioned dietary folate, and as much as you might think, well, gosh darn it, isn't this the patient if they had folate and they're not methylating it very well? Shouldn't we be giving them methylfolate? Hold on. For these patients with the suboptimal SHMT1, the SHMT1 here is going to be the differential diagnosis. We either make, not either, we make sure they get a good amount of dietary folate, which someone like yourself will very likely be getting. Mm -hmm. They can use good old-fashioned folic acid, which is very hard now to differentiate because a lot of the labeling, they'll say folic acid, but it's actually 5-methyl-tetrahydrofolate that they're using. So you've got to be careful because here's the point. 5-methyl-tetrahydrofolate, 5-MTHF, 5-methylfolate, all synonyms. When you've got a suboptimal SHMT1, can be super deleterious to people like you. Deleterious. Because what happens is that 5-methylfolate is sitting there, the methyl group isn't getting transferred, and we start moving that methyl group into the nucleus. And we do not want to start pumping methyl groups into the nucleus willy-nilly at all. So either we get the dietary folate, good old-fashioned folic acid, or what we've found works like a charm in these individuals is adenosyl folate, which is nothing other than folinic acid, and it's the mirror to the adenosyl cobalamin. So we shunt the methyl pathway and favor the adenosyl pathway in these patients. Okay, perfect. Thank you. That was awesome. So folin folinic acid is what I need. Folinic acid. So a blend with a low dose of the supportive Bs, your B3, B5, B6, and the bio, just a low dose supporting, and yeah. just enough folinic acid. I actually have now, in as much as you and I have the same B12 pathway, I do eat meats. Mm -hmm. I have actually stopped taking my B12 Ever since I started my folinic acid B-complex with the B-complex and folinic acid, I no longer take B12 and I don't miss it a day. But I need to take B12 still. No, but of course, as a vegan, most certainly you will. Most certainly. Oh, okay. I know that our time is, is running out, but I think, can we schedule another time to go over the other 
Part of my let's let's do so, Dr. Goal, whether we choose to do it live or not. I, I hope we haven't bored the audience, but I hope you can see. I mean, we're just scraping the tip of the tip of the iceberg here. Yeah, yeah. It's so many, this is so interesting, and uh, I'm so excited to start sharing this with my patients. And then, of course, the implications of it, you see, because had you not been a vegan, Dr. Goal, oh my goodness, you carry the ApoE 3.4. You were yeah, three, I was going to have a chat with you about that. I'm concerned. Let's, let's, we'll take that offline. Let's take that offline. Sure. But it's gonna, it would have been super important. Could you imagine having an APOE4 allele with vascular inflammation? Mm-hmm. Not a good prognosis at all, mm-hmm. right? right? So thankfully, serendipitously, you know, the world has a way of doing things. You have the right diet for this particular genetic complex mm-hmm. but there are a few things we can talk about let's take that offline and if you ever invite me back to you know we're gonna do it again if that's okay well let's absolutely it. no let's do it so much to talk about i have patients asking about keto and you know whether or not they're suited for that and and i know there's a whole piece on neurotransmitters and i'm just so interested to learn about dopamine and well you know the funny part is as much as you're a clinician if you try to do one thing only you would be bored as heck yeah no that's what i you, That's you have the I get basically. You have the classic genomic neurologic pathways. You've got to keep. You've got to keep yourself motivated, doing things, trying new things. Although, am I right or wrong? No, that's exactly right. You can I'm involved in ten different things, but uh, that's what gets me out of bed. So, and we'll talk about that when we get to your neurologic profile. Whenever you have me back to to go. Okay, so I'll see you in a couple of days, and thank yeah. you. Next, next week, Wednesday, I think, is it? Wednesday. Yep. Okay. Super. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye-bye.